Hey guys, how would you like to get all your favorite NBA teams' merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with some amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99, so visit fanessentials.net and use promo code NYLON at checkout for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all the essentials you need. Also, if you leave us a review on iTunes, you'll be entered into a weekly giveaway to receive a free month from fanessentials.net. Please note that winners outside the U.S. must pay their own shipping. Thanks, and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 8 of Nothing But Nylon, the Nylon Calculus Podcast. Joining us today is Krishna Narsu. Uh, Krishna is a writer for the site and has written a couple of posts this year and uh, has also developed some interesting uh, metrics and analytics uh, over the course of the time with Nylon Calculus. Welcome, Krishna. Hi. Great to be on. <laughs> good to, it's good to have you on. Um, so... Just to uh, – uh, Krishna, I'm curious. So uh, one of the things that I did a little bit more at the start of the podcast and I haven't done in a while is ask people sort of what their uh, their priors before sort of analytics were f- for basketball. Like sort of how did you get into basketball and becoming kind of a, a, a basketball uh, stat head? Um, well, so my first experience with basketball – so I grew up as a uh, Knicks fan. Now, I grew up in Rhode Island. So um, I have no clue why I'm a Knicks fan or why I grew up as a Knicks fan. It was uh, honestly a really bad decision because... I was going to say, are you a masochist? Is that, is that perhaps why? <laughs> um, well, so here's, I mean, my dad uh, used to be a Knicks fan in the 70s. And it's, what's funny is that he's a Celtics fan now. Um, and, uh, I, and my brother's a Celtics fan. So my whole family's like Celtics fans. And everyone I know is Celtics fan. So I'm like this random Knicks fan. And, um, you know, to be honest, actually, I've kind of, now that I've been kind of writing about the league more, I'm not really like per se a Knicks fan anymore, but more like a fan of like the whole league and like every team and stuff, I guess. Um, you know, I, so I may be losing a bit of my fandom a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up with that 90s Knicks team. And at that time, um, you know, they were really good. Um, I didn't know that, you know, for the next 15 years after that, they would, you know, do absolutely nothing and have scandals and be a terrible team and just make myself, make make me wish I was not a Knicks fan and that I'd stuck with the Celtics, which, you know, they won a title in 07, 08. So that was kind of like, man, I should be a Celtics fan, you know? And, <laughs> um, especially when, you know, my brother and everyone I know is like, my, and my brother's a huge Celtics fan, so he's like, you know, always telling me, like, why aren't you a Celtics fan? And I'm always like, I don't know why. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm a Boston sports fan for every other team, and it's just, it doesn't make sense, but... <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I had sort of a, a somewhat of a similar experience. So I grew up in in New England for the vast majority of my childhood, uh, up through high school. And uh, but there was a two year stretch when I was um, a kid that I moved to the South um, to Alabama. Uh, my dad's job transferred him down there, and so that was sort of the formative years of when I was deciding which sports I liked and who I liked within those sports. And so I became. 
you know, sort of, uh, you know, I was like five or six years old at the time. Uh, you know, when you're a kid, you like to win. So I picked like the Dallas Cowboys because they were on TV all the time and they were good at the time because it was the 90s. Oh, no. And then I picked the the Chicago Bulls because they had Michael Jordan and they were really good. And I also happened to get like the Chicago Network when I was down in Alabama for some reason. Like they had the WGN Network on the cable package we had. Um, and so I uh, then I moved back to Maine and I just stuck with my teams. And everybody was like, you live in Maine. Why are you like, you know, this uh, fan of these other two teams? And I was just like, I don't know. I just picked them a long time ago and they've been my teams. And of course, like for a long time, uh, the Cowboys up until like this year and uh, the, the Bulls were very bad until uh, Tom Thibodeau kind of like or I guess Scott Skiles sort of revived them and then. Uh, they were like pretty like average for a little while, but they had like a really dark period there for a bit with uh, without like in the post Jordan era, and then they weren't really good again until Tom Thibodeau, and then now they're kind of I don't know middle of the road to to okay, um, but uh, yeah I I know what that's like being in this area in the Northeast and being like man why am I not a Celtics fan <laughs> right especially because they won that title in 07, 08, and yeah. they were in the finals again in two thousand nine and ten so yeah my best friend is a is a diehard. Uh, Celtics fan and um, I remember watching the finals with him the year that they won and he was so happy and I was just like man when are the Bulls gonna be good again like uh, you know I feel like I'm missing out and all that kind of thing but I don't know but I'm I'm loyal to laundry for some reason I guess Um, but that's cool, man. Uh, so I guess moving on to sort of some of the stuff that you've, you've written for the site recently, you wrote a post about uh, defending drives, which I found pretty interesting. Um, it, there were some counterintuitive of things that you, you discovered in, in looking at it. And so uh, can you just explain for, for people listening what you found and sort of uh, what the, even though it was kind of counterintuitive, what the logical explanation for it was? Um, yes, I mean, the whole counterintuitive part is basically like it's better to allow drives, which doesn't, you know, really make sense. Like you want to avoid penetration, right? But I think the whole thought process is that, and the thing is, the important thing to keep in mind is that if you don't have a rim protector, um, allowing drives, you know, allowing penetration stuff, that, that doesn't work. That's, you know, <laughs> then you're just going to be bad on defense. You know, you, you need a solid rim protector, obviously, for this to work, but the whole idea is, you know, you're allowing drives, you're allowing, you're following people into your rim protector, into your big men. And, um, and a lot of the times the people driving are guards and forwards and stuff like that. And so, you know, you're asking them to make a play over a much taller player. Um, and so, and, you know, a lot of the times, what I also found is that a lot of the teams that did kind of allow more drives and had better rim protection were also good at, you know, preventing three-point attempts, and, you know, I think part of the thing with that is, you know, their guys are staying home with three-point shooters, and, you know, you basically get a player, you know, they drive in the lane, and you have this massive, you know, rim protector, like, say, you know, Rudy Gobert or something, and, like, now you got to make a play over him, you know, via pass or a shot, and, you know, um, I think the whole idea is that, you know, it, it's it's definitely counterintuitive that, you know, allowing someone to drive to the basket to get to your big, you know, rim protector. Because you, you want to pre- prevent shots in the paint, but I think the idea is um, you, you know, your rim protector is your best defender, right? You know, the whole idea, like the power forwards, the centers, the big men are the most important defensive players. So by following people into him, you're allowing him to be in the play more. Right, like he's getting more involved in the defense, which which can never be a bad thing. Yeah, I think that was the. So you looked a lot at sort of the correlations between uh, drives allowed and um, and a, a number of other drive metrics and, and defensive rating and some other things. And the thing that I thought was really interesting, and I, I think. Also, we always, whenever we're doing sort of uh, correlative analysis, we always have to be careful about um, about the causation, and so the, you have to think through what might be causing those correlations in, in a sort of logical manner to understand it. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense in the sense that the teams that tend to be 
have good rim protectors. I think that maybe is the correlation. What's driving that right. correlation is that teams that have the good rim protectors are strategically funneling and allowing those drives. So it's not necessarily the case that you know if you just al- allow drives that you're you know all else equal that that you're going to do better on defense that only works if you have that backline defender and if you have you know sort of a sieve in the middle then then you're going to be in trouble if you're allowing those drives um but i do think it's it's interesting to think about if you do have a rim protector whether like an an elite rim protector like say you're a utah and you do have a rudy gobert whether that means that you should be even more hyper aggressive on taking away three-pointers, defending that three-point line at the expense of allowing those drives because you know you have Rudy Gobert uh, or some other uh, high-level rim protector behind you. So the the Warriors, I think, you were an example you mentioned um, of sort of a, a big change from year to year with, with this in terms of uh, what was going on with them. Do you, do you want to tell people what, what you found, uh, at least in the early going, with the Warriors' defense? Um. So, I mean, last year the Warriors had, you know, Andrew Bogut, that Justice Cezili, uh, and Draymond, all great rim protectors, right? They're all good to great, well, you know. And they've lost Bogut and Cezili now, so now you're down to Draymond. And the thing with the Warriors, they allowed, uh, I believe it was the second most or the most drives last year. Um, and they were funneling guys into these rim protectors, right? And... And so now with no Bogut or no Azili, um, you know, people are just getting wide open lanes to the basket, right? I mean, this has been a problem the Warriors have had this year is their rim protection. Rim protection. And if you're still allowing a ton of drives, you know, that can kind of lead to some leaky defense. You're basically playing the same way you played last year, uh, you know, the hyper-aggressive trying to prevent the threes, but now you're getting guys, you know, going straight to the basket because you have nobody there to, protect the rim. So um, I think that was something interesting that I wanted to kind of keep an eye on. Now, uh, of course, they still have Draymond. So, you know, we have to kind of remember that, like, you know, when that mega death lineup gets out there, um, that, you know, they still have that. They can still kind of play that style with Draymond in the middle because um, he has been a good rim protector the last few years. But um, it's kind of when everyone else is in there. I mean, Zaza is I mean, yeah, you do not want him uh, protecting the rim, and, and that's uh, that's definitely led to some. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say I think that Zaza is he was a much more positive defensive player in prior stops. I think age is starting to catch up with him, and you know that's been much remarked upon this year from a lot of people. I think also you have. I think Kevin Durant can be a good rim protector when he wants to be. I think it's he's got to learn their defensive system a little bit more, and that'll probably help with some of those some of those issues in terms of protecting the rim. You know, he's long and seven feet tall, and I, I think I think he'll they'll improve at that over time. But I, I do think that the the fundamental point that um, you know their perimeter guys. Uh, sort of maybe developed bad habits or strategically they were on purpose sacrificing dr- uh, allowing drives in order to better pre- prevent against the three-point line I think is you know a good thing to keep in mind and I think another thing to that's important to, to consider in those sorts of things is metrics like real plus minus um, any sort of on-off analysis that is focused on the point margin if you have your both your starting center and your backup center are good rim protectors, a guy like Stephen Curry or you know some of their other perimeter players who maybe do give up a lot of drives, their go- defense is going to look better uh, because they have a back end rim protector. Because no matter who's on the court, the defense is looking good because the strategy is working fine. But the change in context uh, can have a pretty big impact on what their defensive. Um, on-off statistics um, and adjusted on-off statistics can look like if you have a situation where the context of the defense changes a lot. And I think that's a really good example of how the defensive context can change. If you lose you know, the vast majority 
of your your good rim protectors. You know, suddenly a, a strategy that plays to Steph's strengths, which doesn't ask him to stay in front of people as much and allows him to, you know, maybe be gamble a little bit more for steals, use how use his quick hands. Um, that strategy becomes a little bit more untenable. Um, when you don't have the the rim protector, and it you know ultimately it, it there's a good chance it's not going to matter because they're probably going to have the best offense of all time, um, which you know it's uh, right. <laughs> so you know there's more than one way to to win at basketball, but I think it's in terms of understanding the the defensive numbers and especially things like defensive real plus minus and even like defensive uh regularized adjusted plus minus uh, th- those sorts of things i think are, are very important to understand and i think that your article did a good job of sort of um highlighting highlighting that uh yeah uh i think so just a few things going talking about steph a little more you mentioned like him gambling for steals right and that was something last year definitely with you know all the rim protectors they had where, you know, you could go for steals all the time and, you know, he's confident that like, okay, well, you know, I whip and, you know, this guy drives by me and, you know, he's not going to have a play at the hoop because that's someone to protect the basket. And maybe that's a whole difference this year, um, possibly between maybe, I mean, for example, I think his defensive real plus minus this year is pretty bad. Right. Um, and well, relatively bad, certainly worse than last year. Right. Um, but, um, and so, and, and actually, and the other thing about what's interesting also about Steph going for steals is, um, and, you know, is that, like, once you're getting that steal, and this is something I, I tweeted out, and I guess I just kind of want to mention it on the podcast, but, um, so Seth wrote that great article last year looking at steals in a two-way play, and I was kind of looking into it a little more, and I found that um, on missed field goal attempts, um, after immediately after a steal within the first five seconds, right? So you're talking about um, a player immediately getting a steal and going out and shooting. Uh, off the offensive rebound percentage, like 50, it was 52.2 percent, I believe, which means that um, basically that's like even increasing the value of the steal, right? Like now you're getting a high, even higher offensive rebound percentage off of these. Um, off of steel, off of missed field goals after steel, right? So yeah, that makes it makes sense too, though, right? Because like if you're if you get a steal in, in the open floor and you know you get a fast break off of it, you see it all the time where the offense has a two on one, three on one fast break, and if they miss, well, they have more bodies down there, so they have a better chance of getting the rebound, right? Um, so that, that makes intuitive sense to me. Uh, I thought some of the other, there were, there was a lot of like just good nuggets in the, in this, in the defending drives article that you wrote was not that long, but just, there were so many things in there that I thought were, were interesting. So, and also played off of other ideas that I think are becoming sort of analytic staples. And one of the, the you know, for example, the idea that deterring three point shots is much more valuable over the, the longer season than actually the three point percentage surrendered because you're basically up to the whims of chance to, to a large degree when it comes to whether or not three pointers go in. Like defense doesn't really seem to have much of an effect on whether or not people shoot well on three-pointers at a, at a team level, but the uh, ability to, to reduce three-point attempts is something that that seems to persist and actually is something that you can, as a defense, control. And the, the other thing that... So you had the game-by-game correlations between, like, defensive right. rating and then, like, the season-long correlations, and I thought that it was really interesting that the game by game correlation the biggest thing that connected to defensive rating was opponent three point percentage uh so like if there were if your opponent is making three pointers that's going to negatively imp- impact your defensive rating on a game to game basis but most of that evens out over the course of a of a season and then it sort of goes away so it's like on any th- that like fits in with the idea of like on any given night it's a make or miss league which is right. like a, a coach speak sort of cliche but it's actually now that we're looking at it backed up by the numbers um which is you know ideally always where you where you want to be is you know if it's something that you can explain in a way that is understandable to basketball people and is you know the the things that i think 
go with our intuitions um, and reinforce them, I think are often uh, help with credibility when you're talking to people that are more strictly basketball people. Uh, right. And I mean, I think that was definitely one of the fascinating things I found is the game to game correlations were, um, were, you know, in that article, like most of those statistics were pretty weak. Right. And then there's um, opponent three point percentage is really high, but, and, and of course we kind of know that like, you know, opponent three point percentage is like really random, right? Over the course of the season, you can't really predict it uh, from you know one game to the next. Which, as you mentioned, it's you know it's make or miss league, right? So I think it talks. You know, we we kind of see the random randomness involved in a single game. That you know, um, a player can just get you know absurdly hot from three, or and you know sometimes it's not your night, and there's just so many you know, so many different things that can happen within one game. And, you know, definitely with that, with the game-to-game correlations, I kind of found that where there's nothing that was, you know, really that strong with the exception of the opponent three-point percentage. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it can be kind of confusing in terms of how do you how do you apply this or how do you explain this to people because, like, at the end of the day, like each game is its own thing, and so if you tell people like the only thing that you really is going to determine whether you win or lose by and large is uh, whether or not the shots are falling, <laughs> you know, uh, game to game. But like over a longer term with more sample size, you have other things that that influence it a lot more, and it's like those things seem to be contradictory, but they're they're not. You have to sort of uh, to to borrow the the Sixers phrase, trust the the process. And I think that that was something that players like Shane Battier have have always been really good about. Um, sort of understanding was when he was guarding, you know, Kobe or something. If he got a good contest and Kobe hit the shot, he always always like, well, I, you know, I I did everything that I could, and you know, over the long haul, that shot's not going to fall, and I feel good about him taking that shot against me. Versus, you know, get allowing that to get you frustrated and get you out of what you do. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> trust the process. Yeah. That's. Uh, yeah. It's it's definitely the phrase you want to follow because you know you you do want to be able to uh, have players kind of following their process um, and not just get discouraged when, like, someone hits, like, you know, 10 threes a game like Steph Curry. Like, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you're playing bad defense. That's the thing to remember also. I mean, you know, uh, and, like, I think Seth's talked about this a lot, like the uh, opponent, or, sorry, the uh, field goal percentage defended against, right? Like, so many people are citing that. And yet it's a very kind of random stat in a way, right? Um, and not not just for the reason that, like, you know, that sometimes the player who's the close defender actually isn't responsible for covering um, whoever's shooting, but just from the standpoint of that, like, you know, sometimes you can play great defense and, uh, I mean, at least for a game, certainly, but. Yeah, I think the the pro, one of the big problems with the closest defender shot like shot a percentage against or I think I think the one of the problems with with using that is it's not telling people what they think it's telling them. Um and I think that that is in general a the a lot of the sports view data that we have is really great, but I think one of the the jobs of people that write about this stuff and that think about these things and are framing the discussion for the public, um, which I hope that I'm doing a little bit with this podcast to the extent that this podcast has any reach, um, is that you you want to be using things that that are telling you what you think they're telling you. I think that, you know, that's something Seth has banged on about real plus minus in the sense that it's not rankings. It's not telling you which player is for sure better. Um, it's telling you, it's giving you one, an estimate of player quality, which has, uh, a fa- still has a fair amount of noise around it. And it's also telling you how much of an impact they have in a given role. Um, and that, that does not tell you very much about what they would look like in a different role on a different team in a different context. And similarly, the shot field goal percentage against like when you're the nearest defender to what you're, to your point, a lot of the times the person that is nearest by is not necessarily the person whose responsibility it was to be guarding that person. Also, there's it's subject to a lot of noise, um, as it are most 
uh, shooting percentage metrics when you're dealing with small sample sizes, which these generally are. And also another good way to to know how much uh, value something is providing in terms of if it's telling you something valuable is whether it uh, is predictive and and correlates over time. And in general, I think that the year over year, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong if you've looked at this, uh, but I believe I, I read somewhere um, that there is not much connection between people that defend defend well by that number year over year because it is so it does fluctuate so massively so it is more of a descriptive statistic and even then you have to understand that it's not necessarily describing what you think it is describing uh right um actually i'm not sure has anyone looked into you know the predictive ability of that stat i um i think maybe seth seth tweeted something about it before he before he went to work for the bucks about it not necessarily being that uh, predictive. I could be imagining that. It is also a possibility, but it, um, that might be a, an idea for. That was actually piece. something I, was, I had kind of in my little notepad of list of articles I want to write. That was something I wanted to look at is the predictive ability of that stuff. Well, I wasn't sure if anyone already looked at it though. Um, I'm not. I, I'm not positive. So I, I may have been speaking based on an assumption that I thought I had read somewhere, uh, which is uh, which is possible. That happens. But I. Th- I th- that it. You know. If somebody's already done it, then I, I still think you should do it because I don't think anybody has written it for nylon. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we gotta gotta make sure that it, it's on uh, on the mothership, <laughs> as they say. But yeah, I think that the that sort of stuff is very interesting. And then the the last thing I th- I thought of when looking at the defending drives post that you wrote was that you know defending drives, even you know setting aside the number of drives allowed. But defending drives well didn't seem to be super uh, well correlated with uh, good defense by defensive rating, which made some sense to me. But I was curious to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I was I was a little surprised by that. Um, I think, you know, yeah, it was a little certainly would have expected to be correlated a little higher. Um, and I think for this year. Uh, certainly when I looked at it this year, it was like a really weak correlation, but I think that had more to do with like uh, just playing like 10, 20 games so far. So I think, um, but even last year, it was not as strong as I would have expected. Um, and uh, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not really sure why. Um, you know, you kind of, you would think that like if you're defending drives better, there would be a higher correlation with, you know, defense efficiency, but um Maybe uh, maybe you need more years involved or something like that. Maybe it's um, you know because I, I just looked at last year, so maybe I you know I want to look at like the last three years or something. I, I don't know. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you'd have to you'd have to look at all the, the years that Sportsview has. But right. I, think, I think my initial guess as to why it's not super well correlated would be that. So I one of the things that I, one of the lenses that I like to use for looking at efficiency um, because it has proved to be a useful framework and it, you know, it's been around for a while is the four factors. So defending drives well affects um, and in particular in the way that you were measuring it in the piece is one part of keeping teams to a lower effective field goal percentage. And so for people that don't know, the, the four factors are basically uh, the your shooting efficiency by effective field goal percentage, which is basically just shooting percentage, granting people credit for, for the three point, the extra value of the three point shot. Then there's uh, your free throw rate, you know, for and against uh, the turnover percentage and then rebounding. So those are the four things that really go into efficiency uh, at a high level for offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. And so effective field goal percentage, I think, has been found to be anywhere between 40 and 50 percent of efficiency. So effective field goal percentage is a pretty big chunk. But when you're talking about drives, they're a subsection of effective field goal percentage. And then you have so that that becomes an even smaller percentage of that. And then you get into the the fact that teams that defend the drive well are maybe giving up something else that might be more valuable, like a three point shot or, or what have you. Um, so I think that that to me is probably the most likely explanation. But yeah, may, maybe more years would would show a slightly stronger correlation. But I think it gets to the the idea that with especially with defense in terms of how I think about it, you're always dealing in trade offs. So you can 
accept that you're going to have lower uh, a lower turnover percentage um, for the sake of uh, having sounder de- defense in terms of shot contests and not gambling. But there, you have to understand that you, there is a trade-off there, and you have to make sure that the trade-off makes sense because all of those things go into being a, a good defense, and you're never going to like. I think it would be probably pretty impossible to be number one across the board in all all of the four factors because they just generally require different things like so you sacrifice to some degree like shot contests near the basket to get defensive rebounds i think that was like a big thing with um a few years ago for the bulls with, with carlos boozer was he didn't really contest shots that much but he always was there to get defensive rebounds and he finished possessions and i think you know, he got bagged on a lot about his defense, including by me. But the more I thought about that, the more I think that he was probably providing a little bit more value than I sort of thought at the time. But yeah, that, that's sort of like how I th- was thinking about that when I saw, you know, defending drives not really correlated that well with good defense. And, that you know, like I said, I thought that found that surprising initially. And then I was thinking about it more. And that was kind of the explanation I came up with anyways. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's kind of like a subset, right, of, of defending uh, overall shots and so like you might have so like a team that defends shots uh drives well and like is defending isolations right and and i you know i defensive effective field goal percentage was um I, I, like you were saying the four factors i think uh dean oliver found it to be around 40 percent right in terms of uh predicting yeah. Yeah, so so Dean had it at forty percent, and then I think Evan Zamir from um, N- of NBA Wowie he also had done some analysis, and I think he actually found effective field goal percentage closer to like fifty percent. But in any event, it's a, it's the largest of the four factors is effective field goal percentage. But again, with here we're dealing with a subset of that. Right. So and even so, it's so you're dealing with like a subset of like you know forty or fifty percent, which now makes a little more sense as to why maybe it's not as high because, um, you know, within defending, you know, shots, you know, defensive effective field goal percentage, you have different types of, like, defending isolations, defending, um, which actually, I mean, I guess defending isolations can also be defending drives and that intersects, but, um, you know, or cuts or something, you know, so uh, basically just a subset, I guess you're saying. yeah, I think it, yeah, that that's probably um that's that's the best explanation I can come up with for it for right now. There might be somebody else out there and uh feel free to tweet at at the uh the podcast or at me uh, to to offer up other ideas as to what it might be, but so so just to move on to another thing that you wrote uh within the last week or so that I also found very interesting was you came up with uh so the NBA has now been tracking uh, sort of hustle stats and you came up with a metric for uh or a way to measure to take the raw statistics of uh so loose balls is one of the hustle statistics and you you came up with loose ball success rate so i'm just curious sort of like how you came up with that uh as as a concept and then sort of what your thought process was in terms of determining, I guess, what would go in the denominator of that. Right. Um, so, I mean, obviously we have the numerator with loose balls recovered, but, um, you know, we don't really have, like, a loose balls fail to recover, right? So I think my thinking was, okay, well, we have loose ball fouls. So um, those are players kind of going for a loose ball, but they don't get to it. So that's obviously kind of like failing to recover a loose ball, right? So that would be one aspect. Um, and then Justin Willard, uh, or as everyone knows him as across the court, uh, mentioned loose, uh, lost ball turnovers, which is also kind of another, um, you know, another situation where, you know, a player loses the ball and that's a ball theoretically they're going to be trying to recover. Um, and, you know, obviously I, so one of the questions was, well, do I include dead ball? lost ball turnovers, right? So those are uh, people losing the ball out of bounds. And I could kind of see, like, you can include it. So there's an argument for including it, and there's an argument for not including it. Um, I think, you know, the argument for including it is that, well, it's a loose ball, right? And so someone should be going after it. But I think my, my thinking as to why I didn't include it was because no one was recovering it. Um, so, uh, like the defense isn't 
recovering it either. So it was just like a zero. Um, you know, there's no success. There's just like a failure on, I guess, both ends almost, right? So I figured that for a ratio, I kind of want to have like, okay, one one team's successfully recovering the ball and the other team isn't. And, and the other thing about like the ratio also is that with, um, you know, with a loose ball ratio, you're kind of looking at balls that are in play, right? So with a dead ball turnover, it's out of play. And um, so that's the other reason I kind of didn't want to include it. But um, I don't know. I, I, what do you think? So when I was th- when you were talking about it, it made me think that that the I understood the the argument you were making in terms of that nobody recovered the loose ball. But when nobody recovers the loose ball, the team that touched it last is the team that essentially failed, right? Because then it goes out right. of bounds and they they lose possession. So in some sense, that that failure to recover it hurt is is still a loss of possession for them. Um, so I think that if I was playing devil's advocate against the position that you ultimately took, I, I think that that would be sort of the the thing that I would maybe push on is that any loose ball results in a somebody getting possession one way or the other. And so the other side, in some sense, has failed uh, there. That's not necessarily always fair because some loose balls you lose like when you're right on the edge of the out of bounds line and you know you know the other side did not really have a um, well that they yeah. didn't have like a meaningful opportunity to to grab it but that gets to be you know you have to like be evaluating the plays you know by watching them essentially and not scraping it from play by play so I think that would be probably the the one thing that I I would maybe think about a little bit differently but I understand sort of your thought process behind it but I don't know I don't know what do you think Yeah I mean I, I was kind of going back and forth on that too and you know the whole idea of like I, I guess nobody getting a success um so I was kind of thinking of it like you know with the way it's currently set up I think like 50% would be like you know it's intuitive right 50% is good Right but um, if you're including those dead ball, lost ball turnovers, it actually ends up being slightly lower than 50% because you're now including plays where no one's getting success, right? You see what I mean? So yeah. um, I guess maybe part of it was also trying to make it a more intuitive stat where someone can be like, oh, okay, 50%, that's, that's a good rate. Um, whereas, you know, you're including only the failures that you're, uh, by, you know, with the dead ball, lost ball turnovers are including only failures on one side, theoretically. And, you know, the other side can't recover it, obviously, because it's going out of bounds. So um, that kind of brings it down below 50%. And I guess maybe it complicates it a little more. But, but at the same time, like you were saying, um, it is a loose ball. And there is a failure by one side. So, I mean, it's... Uh, there's definitely an argument for both sides. <laughs> I think I think though the, your your point that you're trying to make it more intuitive. I think that is probably argument enough for doing it the way that you did because I think in general the more intuitive our analyses can be, the the better. Uh, because if if something somebody's just looking at a number and it doesn't make sense to them, or you have to like go into a, sort of a long winded explanation of why it makes sense that the success rate, like a good success rate, is actually below fifty percent, then I think you're already starting to lose people and their eyes sort of glaze over a little bit. And I think that's sort of like that in and of itself is enough reason to to go with the thing that is easier to explain, because I think uh, these sorts of uh, metrics or analyses are, are only as uh, useful as they are effective at convincing people. And so I think that's a, always a, a big thing to, to consider. And I think it's it's smart that, that that was sort of part of your thought process. So I was curious how much information you sort of think uh, is in the loose ball success rate. Like, do you, it, did you notice that like scrap, like quote unquote, like people with scrappy reputations tend to do a better job of recovering loose balls? Or is it, you know, too small a sample this early in the season to really to really say one way or the other? I think that's one thing I was a little wary of about writing it now is that we are still kind of very early in the season. Mm-hmm. And there aren't, you know, I think, you know, I think the, the highest the person who covered the most loose balls was around like 20-ish. 
or something like that, um, which is not that many. Um, and then, so I guess um, I'm not sure if we can necessarily draw any conclusion, especially like it's just so early the season. And as to, you know, whether it's predictive or not, it's just, I figured like we're basically too early in the season to even determine, to even start thinking about like evaluating the statistic, right? Yeah. Uh, I think I think that makes total, that makes sense, and I I think it was great. It is a really good proof of concept, and it, I think it's definitely something for people to to keep an eye on, uh, sort of going forward. The basically just lo- looking at it as you sort of update it over time. Is that something that you have set up so that it's going to be on the website updated like at regular intervals, or are you just going to be writing like one-off posts every like you know few weeks or months uh, to sort of update the numbers? Um, I actually, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I mean, I can, I can have it set up so that, you know, it's updating every day, but, uh, it's really up to, uh, it's really up to our bosses or editors and stuff about what stats are getting shown. Right. So I, I have no idea. I mean, I can write one off post. Either way works for me, but I do have a script set up so that, you know, I can be running that every day. And, um, you know, I think, you know, certainly down the line when, you get a bigger sample size, I think I can start to look to see, okay, is this that predictive of anything or anything like that? Oh. Yeah. So what you're saying is that if people want the information more regularly, they have to pester you on Twitter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, sir. <sure. laughs> it's good to know. Yeah, so I think it'll be interesting to see, um, one, as sort of the season progresses, if, if sort of the reputations line up uh, with the people that end up sort of at the top of the leaderboard and then more long term, sort of year over year, uh, if there's consistency between like, you know, if, if basically uh, getting loose balls really turns out to be a skill or if it is more a, more a matter of luck. And then, you know, I think that it, if it does turn out to be a skill, it'll be interesting to see who's who's sort of at the bottom at, at loose ball recovery rate. And if that's like a, con, a consistent group of people that that are not not efforting enough and then we can uh, we can all point and laugh at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I mean, I'll point out a few different observations just from looking at what I have so far, which is 20 games. So you know, big sample size caveat. But yes, um, <laughs> I noticed there's a lot of big men at the bottom, um, and I suspect that'll kind of continue. As I, I don't think that's a trend that's going to change. I, I think that's probably something that we can expect. Um, and I did, I mean, just looking kind of at the leaders, um, I did see some players that you might expect. Um, you know, like uh, you had Avery Bradley and Marcus Smart up there. Uh, you had KCP up there. Um, let's see. Uh, you had... Uh, Baba Mute up there. Um, so there's definitely some players that weren't surprising. Yeah, I was going to say uh, the, think, those, that that category of players I would describe as being like pressure on ball defenders, which right. makes sense because those are the guys that are poking the ball away and then diving on the floor and grabbing it. Um, right. I, I have a vision of Marcus Smart doing that in my head right now. <laughs> uh, I think the player I'm surprised that wasn't really high up was CP3. Um, I was just kind of looking at it. I mean, immediately I thought, okay, CP3 is gonna gotta be like somewhere really high, like right. He's gonna have a really high success rate or you know ratio, and I was kind of surprised he's kind of lower. Um, and um, you got to scroll down a little bit to uh, find him, and I, I believe part of that was um, I think he hasn't recovered as many loose balls as you might expect, and um, I think he's also got a few more loose ball fouls. Um, yeah. you would expect so that was a little surprising that was the most surprising thing yeah that, that might be i mean that the the higher number of loose ball fouls might be a, a sample size thing so so that, that'll be interesting to, to sort right. of evaluate over time if is if chris paul starts to sort of rise up the leaderboards a little bit more on this statistic because yeah i mean i think everybody sort of thinks of him as being you know one of those scrappy guys that is on ball and like is going for steals and deflections and, uh, you know, getting on the floor to, to get them and stuff. Um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe also, he, you know, he's getting older. Maybe he's not uh, going to the floor <laughs> as often or, you know, yeah. um, you know, diving after loose balls quite as much. I think well, it, uh, he's got four loose ball fouls. 
So actually, that probably indicates he is going to the floor and yeah. he's just not getting there. Yeah. Um, maybe he's lost a step. <laughs> yeah, maybe. He, uh, the four actually does seem like a high amount. Um, just looking at you know, comparing to some other guards and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so that that might be something. I, that... I think that's the reason he's a little lower is because of the baseball fouls. Yeah, so there's a good chance that that probably regresses a little bit closer to yeah, the. Yeah, that's, that's just like an aberration right now. Yeah, um, so that'll it'll it'll be that, that's another thing for for the future for when people are seeing your your next sort of update on this is to look for CP3, find out where he is, and see if he's right. risen. Well, cool, man. That, that's the, I, I really like the, the loose ball stuff. I think it, I think that'll be a, a valuable uh, addition to some of the other sort of sports view metrics that that we've been putting together, uh, that people have been putting together in uh, at Nylon, and uh, certainly some people have done work elsewhere. I don't want to say that Nylon is the only place that's doing this kind of stuff, but uh, I, I would say that we have the most. <laughs> um, yep. And so I, I think that, that those sorts of all that kind of stuff adds a little bit more texture, a little bit better understanding, and a little bit more sort of objectivity around you know questions about who is good at what aspects of defense. Um, I think you know Seth. It, it's like a very similar thing to Seth's rim protection stats in that it like. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, fancy math involved, but it's just taking what we've got, making it into a rate statistic, which um, are valuable for um, sort of obvious reasons because you're actually measuring success rate and not just raw numbers. Um, Because like one of the things that I I always thought would be really good to have is steal rate, not steal rate as in like number of possessions that you that you get steals on which is something that we actually have that's like what steal percentage is at basketball reference but i meant steal rate in the sense of like a steal success rate essentially in the sense oh that would that would be great that would really penalize guys like rajon rondo who reach for steals all the time and then give up blow buys um and, and have good steal numbers which like prop up their box score um statistics because steals are highly correlated with success but um, you know, the, that is a correlation that has a lot underneath of it. And the people that have, that are better at stealing without fouling or stealing without getting blown by, I think are extra valuable, um, above and beyond. So like somebody like Kawhi Leonard, his steals are more valuable than somebody that is gambling for steals a lot because he's keeping you in front of him. He's not getting blown by and he's still getting the high steal total. Uh, so I, I think that this, a steal success rate would be awesome, but loose ball success rate is, is definitely a good start. And at some point, I'm sure, honestly, that teams have steal success rate because they have access to all the sports view information. But maybe one day we'll get a little right. bit more access and we'll have something like that. Yeah, I, th- I think that would be great. I would love to see that because um, – and I, I wrote an article about that a couple of years ago, I think, or maybe a year and a half ago-ish on, on like the whole idea of gambling for steals. and. Uh, kind of like how I would go about calculating that if we had to access sport food data. And I'm sure teams have probably already calculated that. I mean, that seems like, you know, something I would definitely love to see in the public sphere. Yeah. Um, or just love to see personally because um, I am really curious. Like, uh, you, can, you can kind of get a sense of, like, which players are probably would be the leaders. Like, kind of feel like Chris Paul would be among the best in, in a steal success percentage rate or something. Yeah. Um. And meanwhile, like Wanda would be, you know, towards the bottom. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think. I think like um, that. That it would just be. It would just be awesome to to really know um, because it, again, getting into the the idea of like how much do these statistics tell us? It's everybody knows that steals are well correlated with success, but they would steal success rate would be even more well correlated with success because you would be filtering out the people that are are gambling and I think that that would be really cool to see and if you're a team and you don't already have that then um, here's a free idea you should probably do that (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, yeah and uh, you could look up Krishna's post on on how he thought about doing it and then you just you just take the idea (laughs) or hire Krishna (laughs) that's another idea Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm always out here riding for, for nylon people to, to get hired. Uh, of course, if I, if too many people get hired, then I won't have anybody to talk to on my podcast, but <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> um, but, uh, so you, uh, speaking of things that you, the good ideas that you, you put together, um, that are now more conceptual because, uh, 
we no longer have access to the data. You you built a, a shot difficulty metric called Kobe um, about a year ago now, a little over a year ago, um, and you put it out, and I, it's it was really um, interesting stuff. And then I, I guess. Um, you can speak to this a little bit more, but some of the information you needed for it uh, from SportView uh, sort of went away from the NBA site. Um, but can you just explain sort of the methodology a little bit, sort of at a high level, so people kind of understand what you were doing and um, sort of uh, what, what you found in terms of which players looked good or look, looked poor uh, by that metric? Um, yeah, so, I mean, the old SportView shot logs uh, had a lot of information. I mean, so they had each shot and, like, the number of dribbles and how far the defender was away and uh, what else was in the touch time, um, shot distance. There's all sorts of data in there. It was, it was great, and uh, it's really sad that it is no longer with us. Um, it's... it's uh, I really, yeah, but, that, that actually honestly makes me wonder if, like, there, because there was so much detailed information in there that, that maybe teams were like, hey, like, this is, you're kind of giving away everything, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I kind of do wonder that, too, if they're, if they're wondering, like, wait a minute, this is too much information for the public here. Like, this is something that, you know, we kind of want to be using. And, yeah, I mean, who knows? But, um, <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, so I was using that, and I also used height difference, um, which I think, uh, was a a good, valuable addition because uh, so something I found one of the um, interesting aspects of the model that maybe makes it different from some others was that I included height difference, and I found that um, you know shots near the basket. Uh, there's a big difference when you get like uh, players with like uh, minus ten height difference. So someone shooting over someone ten inches taller versus like shooting over like a point guard and you're like a big man like there's a massive difference there's a there's about a 20 uh 20 percent difference in field goal percentage there uh at the wow. basket looking at the height difference so yeah so that's that's something that i think was a great addition uh you know that i really enjoyed adding in and you know the, the one negative is that so like it does give credit to players like a Chris Paul or a Isaiah Thomas, uh, you know, or sorry, it not gets credit or penalizes them um, because they are shorter and they're going to be always shooting over taller players. Uh, but um, on the other hand, it gives them more credit in the uh, Shaq statistic, which is basically um, taking the uh, actual points you've scored and subtracting out the expected points. So, um, you know, it, it's basically kind of a skill metric, right? So if you're, you're expected to score, you know, one point per possession on these shots and you're actually scoring much higher, um, you know, that's kind of like your skill level. Um, yeah. So the two sort of, um, I guess, sum up the, the two metrics, Kobe is a essentially is a measurement of uh, shot difficulty or shot selection to some degree. Right. Whereas uh, the Shaq metric takes into account, you know, how an average player would perform taking the shots that that player took and then gives them credit for what – gives them credit or, or gives them – or, or give, debits them essentially – uh, for how well they do above or do worse than the average player would do given the same uh, shot difficulty. Right. Yeah. That, I thought, so that, that's, I remember when you put that out that it was like really a lot of really interesting stuff. And I think that like the Shaq statistic in, in particular was really good at like who is actually, you know, the best at shooting. I think Steph, probably was always uh, very high in this statistic. And if we had had the information from last year, he maybe uh, would have broke things because some of the shots he took were absurd. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I, they had this uh, data up going to about late January. So Steph had a, so as of that point, Steph had a massive lead uh, in Shaq. And he did lead the league the year before and in, 2014 to 15 and then 2013 to 14 
Uh, Steph did not lead the league. I believe it was AD at the at the check, but um, I, I do. Uh, I believe it was KD who was. Yeah, well, that that makes that makes a pretty good deal of sense for KD because he he, <laughs> yeah. he shot a lot of mid range shots and was like really really excellent at mid range shots and in general those are not high value propositions and a lot of his were contested but he's seven feet tall and can shoot over the top of everybody <laughs> um, right and is also so, excellent so uh, yeah. but yeah that that um. I this is uh, me making a, a slight plea to anybody in the NBA office if they happen to listen to our humble little podcast. Uh, give Krishna back the access to, to the sport view logs because I, I miss having the the Shaq and Kobe stats. It's it, it was a really fun uh, thing to look at, um, and it also I think was a good way to to show just how amazing uh, Steph Curry was, and that's that's always fun putting over one of your best players. Um, but uh, what's the name? Kobe. Yeah, Shaq, Shaq and Kobe is, is pretty Shaq and Kobe. <laughs> pretty great, pretty clever stuff. So, Christian, not, got, not my idea, actually. Uh, I have to give credit to, uh, I think, was it Positive Residual who came up with a Kobe name? Probably. Uh, He's a big Lakers yeah. guy. He's a big Lakers guy. Uh, um, yeah, Positive Residual, uh, He's he's been doing really good stuff just in terms of yeah. this year on, on Twitter, just in terms of uh, putting out stuff every day um, uh, that is just like, Quick, easily digestible like graphs and charts of um, interesting information. Uh, who's having great games, and um, you know nothing like too fancy, but just you know just see some high level interesting stuff uh, that that are quick hits. And so, if you're not following um, uh, Positive Residual, which is just P Residual on Twitter, you should follow him, and you should also obviously follow Krishna. He is. What is it? Is it K Narsu three? Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Um, yeah, so f- follow Krishna, follow Positive Residual. If you don't already follow me, then follow me. But I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm oh, everyone I'm, from Nylon. Yeah, but, follow, follow, so follow the Nylon list. There you go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Somebody has Wait. somebody made a Nylon calculus uh, list of people to follow. You should follow all of them. But uh, Christian, do you have uh, do you have anything else sort of in the hopper for for ideas that you're probably putting out anytime soon, or is it are you still uh, brainstorming? Oh no, I have uh, I have a long list of ideas that um, yeah, I'm kind of working my way through it. So uh, so I mentioned one of them earlier was kind of looking at the defended field goal percentage and just seeing the predictive mobility of it. Um, I also wanted to. Um, so I've been kind of looking at the play-by-play data a little more recently because um, one thing that I think, you know, I guess the whole community, we can kind of mix and match the play-by-play data a little more with, like, the um, sport boot data. We, you know, we kind of combine the basic box score data sometimes. I mean, uh, but kind of using some more of the play-by-play data, uh, like, in, with a way I kind of did with a foosball ratio, um, you know, there's a lot of great information in the play-by-play data. And, um, you know, for, uh, of course, if you're uh, following across the court, he, uh, Justin Willard across the court, uh, he's, he's done some phenomenal analysis, you know, with the play-by-play data recently and his good reviews. Uh, yeah, those are, I, I tweeted out, I tweeted out uh, yesterday or the day before that Justin, uh, at across the court on Twitter, uh, Justin's sort of weekend review pieces that he writes every week for nylon calculus. Those are basically must reads. I, I put them sort of in the same, like, I have to read this as, you know, Zach Lowe's like 10 things I like and don't like columns whenever he has those. Like I always uh, make a point of, of reading Zach's stuff when, especially when he includes those lists in it. Uh, and then, so in a lot of ways, if you're trying to follow the entire league and, you know, maybe you're not able to watch five games a night or whatever, Justin does a great job of highlighting league-wide trends and, you know, news stories and having an interesting take on it. Um, he, he's doing really good work, so um, you should uh, be be reading that, checking the check in for those every week on the, on the Nylon Calculus uh, page. But, um, yeah, he the play-by-play stuff he's been doing is really good. So if yeah. you're, if you're uh, taking cues from him on that, I think that's a, that's a good idea because uh, th- there, there seems to be just a ton of stuff uh, still to be unearthed in the play-by-play stuff. Right. Uh, and, I mean, so one of the things I'm, I'm going to hopefully look at coming up will be uh, 
kind of like the, and I've been tweeting out a little bit about this. Uh, and I tweeted out that uh, the, the stuff about the steals, um, the offensive rebound following, offensive rebound percentage following a uh, missed shot after a steal. So, um, and, you know, one of the things, I, so I wanted to break down the turnover types, so like lost ball turnovers and bad pass turnovers, kind of look at them separately in relation to touches and, um, you know, some of the sport food data kind of combining that. And, um, um, yeah, so that's, hopefully I'll have that up somewhat soon. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I got uh <laughs> Well, it's, it's yeah, good that, that keeping the uh, keeping the the content machine rolling <laughs> over at Nylon Calculus. It's 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 good stuff, um, and we'll be looking forward to, to seeing seeing what you roll out next. And I'm sure uh, when you when you have a, a couple more things up to to sort of make round out an episode, we'll, we'll bring you back on and uh, do this all over again. Yeah, that'd, uh, that'd be great. Enjoy myself.